0: Well, good evening. Susan and I were just joking. I think it's good that you all have your favorite sermons in mind. Um, it's at least a place to start. Um, as I was getting ready for this week, uh, and I'm thank- very thankful that Tim led the service this evening. Uh, normally, I pick out the songs that we're going to sing in the evening, and Debbie picks out the morning songs. And she and I will talk about, you know, what we were going to pick. And sometimes we're-, we're choosing the same songs, right? And this morning, for tonight, I had picked out Immortal Invisible, which was one of the songs we sang this morning. It really, was the theme that was running through my mind over these last few weeks is 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 just God Himself. I mean, it really fit tremendously with this this morning's message, um, and it, it's what's been running around my mind as I'm looking through these minor prophets, looking into the Old Testament. Um, and this week, I heard um, it was a it was a, the start of a message, start of a sermon, but it was uh, with Steve Lawson. And he was talking about uh, a time, because Steve had gone to Ligonier Ministries for a while, he had studied under R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about a time when Ligonier wanted to expand, and they were looking at some, talking to some different consultants about how they were going to do that, um, and the consultant had, a, you know, had two questions that he was asking R.C. Sproul about how this was going to progress. And the first question that the consultant asked R.C. was, when you look out into the world, right? what is the most important thing that you want to deliver? What is the most important thing that the world needs to hear? And R.C. said, well, I I believe the thing that the world needs to understand is who God is. He said, okay, so the, the second question, that's the world and what they need when we look at the church. What, what is the most important thing that the church needs to understand? And I said, well, I believe what's most important for the church to understand is who God is. Right? It was the, it was the exact same answer. The exact same thing that the world needs to understand is the exact same thing that the church need to uh, needs to understand, which is who God is. And when we look into the Old Testament, we have messages like we did this morning, as we went back into the Old Testament, it really is driving home in our minds, I, I hope, and I pray, of who God is. And, and that's what Amos is doing, right? Amos is going to help us see a little bit more about who God is. Um, so if you're not there already, turn to the book of Amos, Joel and then Amos. We were in Joel a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we'll just start by looking at, these, at, the, first, at the first verse. First two verses, it says, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem, he utters his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up, dries up. So as we build the context of this a little bit, Amos is considered, what like we've heard, a, a pre-exilic prophet, meaning that he was sent by God to warn the Israelites of coming judgment in the form of destruction and exportation to a foreign nation. Exile, it can be defined as a, as a forced removal. That's what, that's what he was warning of. And the kingdom of God at this time had been established under King David, it was expanded under Solomon, uh, to the point where after Solomon's death and under the rule of his son, Rehoboam, in 1930 BC, around 930 BC, the kingdom divided, right? So this is the history. Most of us are aware of it. That's when the kingdom divided. The southern kingdom of Judah, one tribe, remained with Rehoboam as their leader. In the northern kingdom, 10 tri- tribes chose to follow Jeroboam. And, um, uh, and that's, that's kind of the context of what we see. When we think about Amos, what do we know? We don't know a lot about Amos. Uh, it says here that he was uh, uh, among the sheep herders. Uh, and in chapter 7, it says that he also took care of sycamore fig trees. So we, we know that that's what, it, what his trades were. We know he was from the southern kingdom. He's from Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And Amos received messages from God to go and preach to the northern kingdom. So he'd leave the south and he'd go to the go to the north to prophesy. Um, at the time of Amos, it was roughly 750 BC. And the northern kingdom had been in existence at that point for about 150 years. And just to build this context, I'd like to take from a moment, put your finger in Amos, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. Give you a minute to get there. What we're going to see here in 1 Kings chapter 12, and it's going to be verse 26, is we're going to see sort of the beginning of this northern kingdom. And it kind of sets the stage as to what was going on 150 years later in Amos' time. All right, so 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26. I'm just going to read it. It says, And Jeroboam said in his heart. And we'll say this is Jeroboam the first, because in Amos we're going to see Jeroboam. That really is Jeroboam the second. So Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. It's like they're right back at the, at the base of Mount Sinai. And here we are standing. You, you almost want to say, are you kidding me? As we look at golden calves and he stands and says, they brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Through 29 through 30, look how many times the word he, I, I, I underlined it, he, he. Verse, uh, verse 29, and he set one in, in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. So he separated the two golden calves. He set up a shrine in Bethel and he set up a shrine in Dan. And he, made, and he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. He made the priests. These are politically appointed priests. The priests in name only. They have nothing to do with the the tribe of Levi. He picked them. He put them in place. So they served him. They weren't serving God. They were serving him. Uh, Verse 32. And Jeroboam instituted a a feast in the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like, like the feast that was in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves, which he had made. And he stationed... In Bethel, the priests of the high places, which he had made. Then he went up to the altar, which he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the the 8th month, even in the month of which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel, but went up to the altar to burn incense. Right? All the religious practice, all the ritual, all the festivals, and the priests themselves in the northern kingdom were established by man and not by God. Jeroboam himself created all of this and led the people away from worshiping the true God. That was 150 years before God had essentially said, that's enough. And he sent Amos up there to prophesy to him. So that sets the stage. Go ahead and turn back to Amos. So in the message from Amos, the first point we're going to see in graphic form concerning who God is, is that God's patience is limited. God's patience is limited. Paul tells us in Galatians 6 that God will not be mocked. And this is exactly what had been happening, and God's patience has run out. And that's what we're going to see. So uh, this fact, we'll look at um, verse 2. It goes actually through chapter 2, verse 6, but I'm going to read verse 2 through 5. And he said, the Lord roars, and hear that being Amos, the Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they threshed Gilead with the implements of sharp iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden. So the people of Aram will go in exiled to Ker. says the Lord. The first thing we see here is that it, Amos says, a Lord roars from Zion, right? It's a graphic image. Lions roar when they're angry, when they're being aggressive, it's vivid, vivid imagery. And it says, he roars from Jerusalem. Oh. Not man's chosen city of Bethel that we just saw in First Kings. This is, this is from Jerusalem. This is where God is. His voice, it's God's voice. It, 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 it goes over Carmel and dries up. It's like a ripple going out. Right, you throw a rock in a in a in a pond, the ripples go out. This is this is the picture of the Lord's voice going out from Jerusalem. He roared; it that voice rippled out, and it's going to have its effect on the hearers. Right. So, verse three, verse three begins what's considered the seven oracles of Amos. Right, an oracle uh, being uh, a message from God was being delivered. Right, it's being delivered through a person. In this case, the oracles are God's messages concerning his coming judgment on the Gentile or the pagan nations that are surrounding Israel. And the first is this oracle against Damascus. In verse 3, it says, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four. It's, it's, again, it's, it's imagery. It's a, some call it a formula. It's essentially saying it's, it's full. God's, God's full. They, maybe for three transgressions. God tarried, but on four, that's it. Judgment is is imminent at this point. So three transgressions of Damascus and for four, and I will not revoke its punishment. And this is not to say that Damascus was a threat to Israel because in the day of Jeroboam, they were not a threat. God is not going to punish these pagan nations because of the way they treated Israel, but because of the way they treated other human beings who had been created in his image. God was angry at this pagan nation because they had committed crimes against humanity. Look at uh, the second half of verse 3. It says, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. What it's saying is, is Damascus had probably militarily defeated Gilead, but then they took these large iron things that they would use in the field and they just ground the bodies into the ground. Right? It was inexcusable. And God God wasn't having it, right? It was crimes that it was above and beyond anything that would be expected. And for that, they were going to be judged. Um, Verse 6 starts the next oracle, continues with an oracle against Gaza. It says, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Why? because they deported entire population to deliver it to Edom. This treatment of other peoples was unacceptable again before God, and as a result, judgment was coming. We see that continue through the oracles against Tyre in verse 9, Edom in verse 11, the sons of Ammon, verse 13. And look at verse 13 just for a minute. Verse 13 says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Why? Because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. How close to home does that strike in a nation that has already aborted millions of infants? Even this day is rapidly moving towards abortion on demand. A nation with an elected government that supports abortion any time any place, any reason. Amos's message even to our nation this very day is that God's patience is not unlimited. Amos, Amos is ultimately going to bring things a little bit closer to home in this next oracle. A little closer to home for his listeners. Chapter 2, verse 4, says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah... And for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. The oracle against Judah. Now, Israel had split from Judah, right? But they would have still recognized that Judah was God's elected people, God's chosen people and they would not have expected this type of punishment from God. They had a a wrong view of God and thought that no matter how they were living their personal lives, that God would be their protector, right? No question, this this message against Judah would have started to make them a little bit nervous with what Amos was was saying. Judgment had already been declared against the pagan nations, and notice, not because of idol worship— or their lack of worshiping the one true God, but because of how they had treated other human beings. They had violated the law of God, the law that God had written on their hearts. I'll just read them to you. We remember the words of Paul wrote in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Chapter f- 2, verse 14 says, For when Gentiles do what do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience-bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men, through Jesus Christ these nations were declared guilty of breaking the law God had placed in their hearts and we know that the same law is written on the heart of every human being that is alive today look back at verse two uh, uh verse four again chapter two and notice something very interesting it says for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke its punishment Why? Because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. It's it's a sweeping theological judgment against the family of God who had been blessed directly by receiving his word. If the pagan nations were going to have destruction brought against them for breaking the law in their hearts, how much more guilty would the family of God be? We know that those who have been given the word of God must live in submission to it. This truth is as relevant for the family of God today as it was in the 8th century B.C. Luke 12:48 says, To whom much is given, much is required. God was requiring. First, the second part of verse 4 says, Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Willfully led astray by lies. No desire at all for discernment. No desire to see if the way they lived and worship matched up with God's written word. Blindly following after traditions. Is this not a picture of the world that we see today? Billions of people following after religious traditions that are built on nothing but lies and no desire for discernment. They're willingly being led astray. Jesus himself in Mark chapter seven, verse six says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. We see it today. We saw it in First Kings. It was all set up by men, right? It's so many. We're seeing it today. We, it's, it's never stopped happening. These are damning teachings and damning traditions that lead the followers away from the truth and into error, building an allegiance to ritual versus reality. Next, Amos finally brings it home to his listeners in Israel. And this is no health, wealth, or prosperity message from Amos. This is a word of God, and it is directed to his chosen people. Chapter 2, uh, verses 6 to 16, it's an oracle against Israel, and this really is the theme of the remainder of the book, what we see here. Israel's list of sins are laid out in verses 6 to 12 and with judgment being announced in verse 13. So I'll read verses 6 through 12. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble. A man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my name, my holy name, And on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And I led you in the wilderness 40 years, that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite that I raised up for some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Amos unfolds the sins here for which God is going to judge them. And we begin to see what actually is going on in the society itself. The people of Israel at this time are marked by three overarching characteristics. The first is moral corruptness. The second is economic prosperity. And the third is religious hypocrisy. These are the three themes that are kind of overarching and descriptive of what's going on in the society uh, in Israel during this time. Their moral corruptness is first seen in in verse 6. Second half, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. What this is saying is they're selling people into slavery. They're they're abusing the needy of the society. They sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. More corruptness is also seen in sexual profanity. Second half of 7, verse 8. And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order order to profane my holy name. And on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. These are crimes against humanity, crimes against their own family, but primarily they are, of course, crimes against God himself. So judgment comes. In Judgment, verses 13. Behold. Pay attention, right? We've seen this before. Pay attention. I'm weighted down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grabs the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. He's saying, the military, your, your military Israel is going to be wiped out. I'm taking it down. From there, as we continue this overview of Amos, chapters 3 through 6, they're what's considered the sermons of Amos. Right, Chapter 3, verse 1, 4, verse 1, and 5, verse 1, all begin with the phrase, hear this word. And we see it here in chapter 3. Hear this word which the Lord of Israel has spoken against you sons of Israel against the entire family, which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Turn, turn over to verse 10, same chapter, just for a minute. Chapter three, verse 10 says, "But they, God says, but they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. This is a striking statement. They had been given the word of God. God had led them in the wilderness. He had raised up prophets. He had raised up Nazarites. And yet decades of false teachings and willfully being led astray has brought them to the point that they did not know how to do what is right. They certainly knew how to do what was right in their own eyes. Right. But not what God said was right. And there are important implications here for us, and, and I'm speaking to myself here as well. We are blessed with so many opportunities to learn what God expects. Our Sunday schools, our home Bible studies, our prayer meetings, men's and women's studies, not to mention the preaching in the word. These are all opportunities to teach us how to do what is right. If we neglect or devalue any of these blessings, we miss out on opportunities to learn what is right in God's eyes. So we looked at moral corruptness of the society, and next we're going to see their economic prosperity. Their prosperity is first seen in chapter 3, verses 15. And it says, I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end. Declare this word, declares the Lord. Hear this word, verse four, ch- uh, chapter four, verse one. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, "Bring now that we may drink." Let's not be confused. It's not the prosperity that is that is a sin deserving of judgment. It's right. It's not the Money is the root of all evil, right? It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. So it's not prosperity that's a problem. It's how they became prosperous and wealthy. And in verse four, it says, by oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. That's how they made, that's how they had their wealth. And that's the problem. And chapter four, we we know the cause of Bashan is Amos' way of addressing the women of Samaria Because he says in the second half of verse 1, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. And no question, there was a high degree of sarcasm in the words of Amos. But his point is this. In this day, the cows of Bashan were highly valuable cattle. They received the best of the best when it came to their care. We could say these animals were pampered. And that's the analogy Amos is using. The analogy being pampered women who trampled the needy. And Amos speaks such chilling words to these women in verse 2. The Lord, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you. You being the, women of, the elite women of Samaria. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. Such a graphic picture of being dragged into exile. The society was marked by moral corruptedness, their ill-gotten wealth, and now we see religious hypocrisy. Chapter 4, verse 4 reads, Enter Bethel and transgress. Remember, Bethel was one of the shrines that Jeroboam I had set up. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning. Your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel. We can hear the sarcasm in that writing. They were very religiously devoted people bringing sacrifices every morning, but not in the way God wanted. He did not want them to be bragging about their offerings. Make them known for so you love to do. Their hearts were not right. They were following their religious traditions. Their religious activities were worthless because they were purely hypocritical, meaning the type of worship they brought and in their daily lives, they treated the poor as an example that demonstrated where their heart truly was at. We can see again what God thought of the religious activities. Um, turn over to chapter 5 uh, in verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. This is God speaking. He says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me, burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your hops. Right? He didn't want their their fake religion. And he wasn't going to accept it. They were not pleasing to God. Why? Because they trusted in the ways of their traditions and in their teachers, instead of hiding the word of the Lord in their hearts, that they may know what is right. I think the verse that comes to many of us is Psalm 1, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might might not sin against you. Back at the beginning of chapter 5. This is what's considered the final sermon. And Amos presents it. He sings it as a dirge. It says it here. Hear this word which I take up for you as a dirge. It's a funeral song. He's going to sing the funeral song of Israel. O house of Israel, she has fallen. She will not rise again. The virgin Israel, she lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. You know, most prophecy kind of looks ahead. It looks for a future event. And here in verse two, it says she has fallen. He's singing this Funeral dirge, as though it's already happened. She has fallen. And it says she lies neglected on her land. Please don't miss this. It says neglected on her land. It was their land, but it was given to them as a gift. They did not by themselves earn the land. It was by God's grace alone that they lived in this land, and it was a gift from God. It's a good time to remind all of us that everything that we have is a gift from God. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. and comes down from the Father of lights. I will say that as a father, I'm proud when my kids when they put in hard work and they do well at school, but I'm always concerned that they might ever begin to think that they have earned it on their own. How easy it is for any of us to forget to praise God for anything and everything we have. And I will say to you kids here tonight, praise God for the loving and caring parents that God has given you. Parents that are faithful to teach what is right. If you do well on a test, praise God for it. It's a gift from God. Praise God for the employment we have to support our families. I don't somehow deserve it in and of myself. It's by God's grace and it's a gift from Him. Praise God for our church family for faithful elders and deacons and children Sunday school teachers. They are gifts and blessings from God. Once we let the smallest seed of pride enter into our hearts, it will start to grow and draw us away from the truth of who God is in our lives. The Israel of Amos' day spurned their gifts and blessings and wanted to give credit to themselves. And God, in effect, is saying, I will have none of it. Moving over to chapter seven, we see that um, Amos did in fact receive his prophecies directly from God. God gave them to him through visions. Verse one says, chapter seven, thus the Lord God showed me and behold, he was forming a locust swarm. I'm familiar from, from Joel from a few weeks ago. Verse 2, and it came about when he had finished eating the vegetation of the land, I said, Amos said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand for he is small? The people thought they were strong and independent. Amos recognized that they were weak, helpless, and hopeless before a powerful God. Amos appeals to the only thing he can, which is God's compassion for the weak and says, please pardon. God's response is that these particular forms of judgment will not happen. Amos intervenes as only a true prophet of God can. Verse 3, the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This demonstrates simply the personal relationship God has with Amos, his chosen instrument to be used in the lives of those in Israel. We saw this this morning when we looked at Moses intervening on behalf of the Hebrews. But again, working to have a right view of who God is and not a God of our own making, we have the last vision. It's in chapter 7. It's verses 7 through 8. And it says, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I shall rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. God chose Amos a plumb line, which is a symbol of what is straight and what is right. The actions of the people did not line up to the plumb line of God. And he says in the second half of verse eight, I will spare them no longer. They are devastating words. I will say that there's much more here, but turn with me over to chapter eight, chapter eight, verses 11 and 12. And this is one last exercise of God's judgment on the people of Israel. And God says in verse eleven, "Behold, days are coming," declares the Lord, "when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread, or a thirst for water, but rather for the hearing, for hearing the words of the Lord. They will, and the people will stagger from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They will go to." and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And you can't help but st- to stop and pause when you read these words. A famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Famines of food and water are devastating physically for the here and now, but a famine of the word is much more devastating because its effects are spiritual and eternal. I don't think we need to go much farther than Romans 10:17 that says, "So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There is no other word that truly matters. Sadly, I wonder how many homes in America have a Bible tucked away on some bookshelf that never, ever gets read. The Word of the Living God, the words of Christ, the gospel that has the power to save within arm's reach of millions. And yet the truths it contains, never having the opportunity to make it into their hearts. Life-saving truths that are being willfully neglected. Turn over finally to chapter 9, the last chapter. God provides Amos with one more vision of confirmed judgment. Verse 1 says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. I'll start right there. This is one of the shrines, right? Because that's where he is. Normally you see God, he's there to, to bless the sacrifice. You think this is a good thing? God's there. He's going to crush this shrine, right? That's what's going to happen. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. Then I will say to the, rest, to the rest of them, and I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Verses two through four, we're going to see the omnipresence of God. We talk about it. This is the view of the omnipresence of God. Because no one's going to escape. That's the point. It doesn't matter where you're going to go. No one is going to escape the wrath of God. Verse two says, though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command my serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. And the Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts and all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of the Egypt. No matter where they go, doesn't matter where they go, they cannot escape the judgment that's coming. as we look over into chapter uh, verse 11 because we know that this isn't the end of the story right Israel doesn't end there the jewish don't end there right so we move over into verse 11 and this is amos looking into the future certainly the question is how to understand what amos is prophesying about when he when and where this will take place so if i read verse 11 it says in that day i will raise up the fallen booth of david and wall up its breaches i will also ri- ri- raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old this particular verse amos chapter 9 verse 11 was quoted by james in acts chapter 15 at, at the council of jerusalem Right, and he used this to justify bringing the Gentiles in, right You can see that in verse twelve, it says that they may possess the remnant of Eden, and all the nations who are called by my name some of your some of your instead of nations may say Gentiles, so James uses this to talk about the Gentiles bring being brought into the family of God, but why? this, I believe, points to the second coming of Christ is the next verse. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that's verse 13, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. This is a a scene of of, of Christ has returned, he's rebuilt the house of David, the Gentiles have fully come in, and now things are better than they can imagine. The plowman will overtake the reaper means in harvest time, they can barely get the harvest in before the next crop is being planted and ready to grow. This is, this is good days. This is after the second coming of Christ. And the treaders of grapes will sow seeds, in the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine, Make the gardens and eat their fruit, I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord, your God. When we talk about this Gentiles in, in romans eleven twelve Paul writes, "For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, now, I'll let you continue studying this on your own. But this is—it's in Acts chapter chapter fifteen. We see it here. We talk about the fullness of the Gentiles, and I believe it's clearly pointing to the time after the second coming of Christ. At this time, by the time God's mercy, things are going to be good for Israel. Throughout this entire book of Amos. We hear words repeating like, the Lord God has spoken, declares the Lord, thus says the Lord. And look at how Amos ends. The very last line says, the Lord, your God, he brought it personal. They're back in a right relationship with God. And he says, the Lord, your God, people, God never changes. People change and they're back in a right relationship with God. So I will say Amos has helped us understand or I hope he's helped us understand who the true and living God is. He is a God who is patient and long-suffering but whose patience is not unlimited. He is a righteous and holy God who must punish sin. He is a God who will not be mocked by religious hypocrisy. He puts puts up with it for as long as he perfectly chooses but one day he will step in and tear it down. He is also God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life he who believes in the son has eternal life but he does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abides on him we understand that we're all sinners deserving of eternal death and yet by his grace god gave us his son we were reminded this morning We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the scriptures alone. God has given us his word and everything we need to live in an obedient and loving relationship with him. Who remembers what the Westminster Confession says of the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy him forever. By his grace, may we do just that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the time that we were able to look into your word this evening. Lord, we thank you for the messages that we've heard over the years that have said such a profound effect on our heart, not because of the words of men, not because of the devised schemes of men, but because it was your word preached faithfully. What I pray, I pray, Lord, that each one of us would long to share that message with those that are around us. May we stand faithful. May we stand shoulder to shoulder with each other. May we be convicted of the truths that you've opened our eyes to. May it be all to your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.